I hope everyone is feeling a little excited in this uh, new year, 2019. I don't know about you, but that number, for some reason, massively disappoints me. And the reason it disappoints me is my entire life, I was told by now I'd have a jetpack or a flying car. And I have neither one of those. And every single year that goes by and I still don't have rocket boots or a jetpack or a flying car, I, I don't know what we're looking forward to with the future. The future is just bleak. Okay. Now, those of you who really know me think this is hilarious because you know I'm terrified of heights. So my jetpack and my boots and my flying car, they'll only fly about three and a half feet off the ground. You know, and so you can just kind of, you know, go over, you know, go over people when you need to and just kind of things like that. But so I'm really counting on you young people here, you know, who come to this church. I hope you come to know Jesus and I hope you invent rocket boots for me because this is my, this is what I dream of every day. So just kind of curious, uh, how many of you put on weight over the last couple of weeks? Woo! Praise be to the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts and the Lord of meals. Thank you for those of you who bring pie and chocolate and everything to the church this Christmas season. I love you dearly. You're going to put me into an early grave, but I love you dearly. So, no, it's awesome. And this is always a fun time of year. And uh, this time of year, um, what we usually do as we kind of kick off a new year is we kind of just look a little bit, spend a few weeks talking about what God is doing. Like what God is doing in our church family, what God is doing in our city, what God is doing across the nation, what God is doing around the world. Because if you're anything like me, it's very easy to have our eyes focused on ourselves, right? Kind of like my, tro- my troubles, my, my tribulations, my stresses, the stuff I have to deal with. And one of the things I love about the Bible is the Bible forces us to have a bigger picture view of the world. It forces us to have a bigger picture of who God is. Because when I, you know, picture God and the limited knowledge that I have of God, it puts him in a very small box. And the same thing with the work that he's doing in the world. If I just limit myself to what I can personally see, it can feel like God is very small and God isn't doing anything. But the truth of the matter is, is God is doing amazing things in our church family, in our city, and around the world. Like today is a, is a party celebration kind of day. I mean, for the fact that we've got brothers and sisters right now worshiping just in the other room in, uh, in the Arabic language. Uh, sometimes they mix it up. Sometimes it's in Lebanese. Sometimes it's in Egyptian. I've been attending their service every Sunday in the afternoon since November. It all sounds the same to me, but I'm still, I'm picking up words and they're, they're very proud of me. Like I'm saying like Yeshua and Messiah and, and I'm starting to pick up, you know, some of the Alleluia words and amen. So I, I feel very Middle Eastern. It's exciting. You know, for this like awfully white Canadian boy, you know, it's kind of nice to get a little bit of culture in. So it's really exciting that that's happening. A buddy of mine, Pastor Matt, down the road, his church is over 100 years old, and they just launched a second worship service today. Okay, and not only did they decide to launch a second service, Pastor Matt did the most god awful thing ever. He threw away all the wooden pews. And they didn't fire him. So we need to pray for Pastor Matt. The fact that he, on a church that's over 100 years old, pretty set in their ways, went to two services and threw out all the wooden pews. So pray for Pastor Matt as they're kind of learning this new thing of going to two services. So it's just an amazing thing that all that God is doing. Now, something about me, just as, before we dive into the text today, something you need to know about me 
is um, I lead out of a certain number of core values of who I am. I spent the first number of years of my pastoral ministry trying to be somebody else, of trying to be Craig Rochelle or trying to be Andy Stanley or trying to be Bill Hybels or trying to be all these big name pastors. And it literally almost killed me of trying to be somebody who I'm not. So I've been going through this journey of learning who I am. What are my values? And one of my values, one of my core values when it comes to leading in a church and doing ministry is the core value of fun. Okay, we are doing the most important work on the planet. I firmly believe that the church is doing the only work that is going to last for all eternity. And if we're not having any fun doing it, what's the point? Right? So... I get it. Sometimes I make jokes and I'm a little lighthearted and I'll make comments like, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just making it up as I go, especially when we've been talking about this launch with the Arabic ministry. Well, you need to know a whole lot of work went into this. A whole lot of work by not just me, but by a whole lot of people, our staff, our key volunteers, our kids ministry, our youth ministry. It's just been an exciting time of seeing so much work happening so that we can take a step further into the vision that God has given us of reaching more and more people with the gospel. That the good news of Jesus, that God loves you, that Jesus died for you, and that you can be made right with God and live an abundant life. In Christ, And so it's so exciting to see this. And so just, again, to paint some of the picture of the work that's gone on, just so, you know, we can grow our church by another little service that's happening in the other room. We literally had 56 detailed tasks that staff and key leaders were working on since the months of October. We've had dozens of meetings. And I mean, <laughs> it feels like thousands. <laughs> There were so many meetings and meeting upon meeting to make sure we understood and clarify and the language barriers and different things like that that would pop up. Okay, We had tons of prayer going into this just so that we could start another worship service you know, to reach people that on our own we wouldn't have ever been able to reach. right? And I make the joke you know, that there's no book that I could have just bought. And so that we could kind of grow the church and and kind of launch this thing. You're right. There isn't one book. Since October, I read 10. And I'm just going to run through the list of these things. And if there's any topic that just jumps out, well, I'd like to read that. Come and see me because I'd be happy to get some of these books out of my office. But I read, like, since October, I've read, like, How to Break Growth Barriers, The Unstuck Church, Pursuing God's Will Together, Fathering Leaders, Motivating the Mission, Fierce Conversations, The Advantage, Sacred Companions, How to Grow, Social Church, Developing the Leader Within 2.0. There's all these books, these leadership books and ministry books and methodology books that I've been plowing over for the last couple of months. And what's fascinating, I have a point, we are going somewhere, okay? (laughs) What's fascinating to me about all of these ministry books and these leadership books is they all focus on the method the program, the leadership style. Well, if you just do this program, if you just bring in this type of leader, if you just run things like this, then you'll see a certain amount of results. And there's some truth to that. But what I want us to unpack as we look at the Bible is I want us to look at it more from this framework of this question. I want you to think of this question. You don't have to shout out your answer, but I want you to think of this question of what does church mean to you? What does the church mean 
to you personally, when you come here on the occasional Sunday, when it fits your busy schedule, or if you come every Sunday, or you show up whenever the doors open, whatever your kind of relationship with this church is, what does it mean to you? Is it friends? Is it because it's family? Is it because there's good programs? Is it because there's good worship, good preaching, if Kevin doesn't go long? Is it because it's, you feel like it's just, it's just, you're, you're tapping into something larger than yourself? Maybe you're the type of person who, who just likes the tradition of it. Maybe you're the type of person who loves it when it's incredibly non-traditional. Maybe you like, you're the type of person who likes it, you know, that it's more contemplative in those times of prayer. Or maybe you're more energetic and you like it with a little bit more vibrancy. What does church mean to you? See, most of us, when we answer that question, we think immediately of the methods, how we do church. The method. All of these books that I've read over the last two months focus on the method. But what I want us to do today, as we kind of kick off the next few weeks, is understand this. I want all of us to be able to understand this. Is that ultimately, how we do church isn't about the method. It's about the theology. Our theology must drive our methodology. Those are some fancy Christian buzzwords, which basically means what I believe about God and his church should drive how I do church. It's not about what we prefer or what we desire, but is what does God prefer? What does God desire? So what I want us to do today is start building some theology together today on not to focus on what does church mean to me, but rather so that we can understand what does church mean to God? What is God's heart for the church? And we develop our theology, our understanding of the heart of God, in order to see this is why we're doing things this way. This is why we merge with another church. This is why we go to multiple services. This is why. Right? It's not about the method. I always tell people, never fall in love with the method. Because methods must change. It's the way ministry works. Methods change but the mission, the theology, the heart of God is the same. Our theology must drive our methodology. So today, let's develop a little bit of theology on what does church mean to God. If you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open up to Ephesians chapter 4. If you want to use your mobile device, you can go on your web browser, go to greenbelt.church. There's a little media tab up there. Just click media, and you can see the sermon outline that way as well. If you're uh, here with us today in person and you don't own a Bible, the blue book in the chair in front of you is a Bible. That's our gift to you. Uh, if you're watching us online, you don't own a Bible, email me. I will send you a Bible. I believe every family should own a Bible. So Ephesians chapter 4, this is written by the Apostle Paul, and he wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus. 
And as we study this, we actually see that this is a generic enough letter that Paul's intention of this letter was not just simply to go to one group of people. Paul's intention with this letter was for it to be distributed among all the churches. So this is for the church. Paul, the apostle who originally hated Christianity, who has a supernatural encounter with the resurrected Jesus, becomes a follower of Jesus, goes out on mission, goes all over the known world, starting all these churches, raising elders, raising pastors, starting new churches, and then wrote letters like this to equip them so that they could understand what church means to God. So let's read this here in Ephesians chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1 starts, Paul writes, says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God who became mature and become mature, sorry, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Ephesians, this letter, is actually one of my favorite books in the entire New Testament. And what I love so much about this particular letter is it's a sermon. It's a sermon. Paul writes this out exactly like if you were to take my sermon notes, you would see all the same big ideas and big kind of points. The movements that we see in a typical sermon on Sunday morning is the same movement that we see in this letter. Right? Paul starts off giving theology, like he's doing teaching. Right? He's teaching about God's plan for the world. He's explaining the mysteries of the gospel. And because of Jesus' death, all people can receive forgiveness from their sins. They can receive forgiveness from God. They can receive forgiveness from other people. And Paul teaches, because of this sacrifice, because of this gift that we receive, we become what Paul calls a new humanity. Think about that. See, the church is not just simply a gathering of people singing kumbaya and having potlucks. 
Paul views the church as a new humanity. Now, as a science fiction and fantasy guy, that's cool. It's like, wow, it's like we're the X-Men or the Avengers. And we should have jetpacks and flying cars, just like the X-Men and the Avengers. We are different than every other group of people on the planet. We're a new humanity because of the Spirit of God that lives in every single believer. And so Paul builds up all of this theology, and just like a sermon, he doesn't leave it there. Sermons are not about teach, 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 go home. Sermons are all about, because of this truth, what do I do with this? How does it change how I live? And that's what Paul does. He makes this shift in chapter 4 from all of this teaching about the gospel and the mystery of it and the mystery of this new humanity. And then he goes, because of this, because of the theology, we change our methodology. Because of what we believe, we change how we live. That's what Paul is showing us here. And we can kind of summarize kind of as a big idea. Again, we're looking for God's heart for the church, God's goal for the church. What, is, what, is God, what does the church mean to God? And we can see here through this text, I'm going to summarize it with this, by, this big idea, is that God's heart for all of us is unity and maturity. If you have put your faith in Jesus to, excuse me, to save you from your sins, God's heart for you is unity and maturity. God's heart for all of us collectively as a church body is unity and maturity. The church is simply a gathering of people. It's not programs. It's not buildings. It's not staff. Not any of these things, the church is a gathering of people for the purpose of unity and maturity. So over the next few weeks, I'm going to start with building some theology today, and over the two weeks after that, I'm going to explain where we're going to go so you can kind of get a glimpse and understand how this all fits together. Next week, we're going to talk about Greenbelt's mission of knowing, living, and sharing Jesus and developing our theology to explain why we believe this is our mission. The week after that, we're going to talk about Greenbelt's vision, right, of being a vibrant, growing Christian community engaged in reaching 10,000 people with the gospel. We're going to look at the theology behind the vision. And then after that, we're going to start a new series, which is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to go through the book of 1 Corinthians together in a series called Messy Church. <laughs> because church is messy, you know, we like to think, you know, it's nice and it's fluffy and we all wear our nice clothes and we show up and we smile. How are you? I'm fine, brother. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I'm fine. How are you? You know, the number of times people have told me that their life is fine on Sunday morning and then I go on their Facebook page and see their life is a train wreck. You'll post it on Facebook but lie about it on Sunday. Why? I don't understand why we do that, but we just do. <laughs> We're more comfortable telling strangers what's going on in life than what we want to tell the church. Maybe because we feel we're not supposed to feel this way. We're not supposed to have doubts. We're not supposed to have sin. We're not supposed to have struggle. Our life isn't supposed to be messy. 
Well, 2,000 years ago, the church was messy, and Paul had to deal with it. And today, the church is messy, and we have to deal with it. And we're going to go through that series together. But today, I want to unpack a little bit of theology to explain the heart of God, that God's heart is unity and maturity, so that all of us can ask the question, well, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for me, personally? And as you unpack what does that mean for you personally, we'll also unpack what does that mean for us as a church family, who are now doing three worship services in two different languages. What does that mean for us, where God's heart is about unity and maturity? So I'm going to break down this passage in Ephesians chapter 4 into three kind of key points. I encourage you to write these three points down. Talk about them with your family over lunch today or talk about them in your life group. This, uh, if your group has started up again already, you can talk about this stuff, pray about it. But uh, I want all of us to see how this personally impacts us. Because again, our theology drives our methodology. What we believe drives how we live. So let's see what Paul talks about, the heart of God for his church. The first point is this is that God's heart for all of us is for all of us to live our calling. For us to live our calling. It's very important to note that the Apostle Paul writes this letter called Ephesians from prison. You see, Paul lived in a culture where basically any religion goes. (laughs) Like all religions are good. Paul lived in a place where you could go to one temple and you could worship this statue. You could go to a tree and dance around the tree and worship that. You could go to a pond and you could worship the water. It didn't matter. As long as you were sincere and it worked for you and you didn't bother anybody, go for it. Sounds kind of like Canada. Just do whatever you want. Just don't bother anybody. Don't tell anyone about your faith. Don't tell anyone about Jesus. Just let people do their own thing. You want to worship a stick? Go ahead and worship the stick. Want to dance around the tree naked in the woods? Knock yourself out. Just don't invite me to that. Right? As long as it works for you. That's the culture Paul lives in with all these gods and all these different ways to worship and all these different religions. And Paul is in jail. He's not in jail because he was secretly stealing people's chariots and redesigning them and repainting them and selling them to other Romans. He wasn't illegally betting on the gladiator games. Paul's in jail because he went into this culture that would say any God is good. And Paul said, no, there's one God, maker of heaven and earth, and he is holy And he is loving, and you can know him personally, not through your religion, not through all these rules, not through your tradition, but you can intimately know this one and only God through his son, Jesus Christ. And if you accept him and believe in him and repent of your sin, you will be made new, and God's power will come into your heart, and you will be a new humanity. You will be different, born again. People said, let's lock this nut job up. Because everywhere he went, he caused disruption. He caused riots. People got angry at a message like this. So Paul is in prison. 
And he starts chapter 4 saying, as a reminder, he's, remind, he's four chapters into this letter, he reminds people that I'm a prisoner for the Lord. You see, Paul, as a prisoner, he shares in other writings that he had the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with a whole lot of different people. Other prisoners, the guards, the captain of the guards, the ship captain who would kind of bringing him to go see Caesar when he was making his case because he wanted to present himself to Caesar. It was his right to do that as a Roman citizen. He got to bring the good news of Jesus to all these people who he never would have been able to do it for if he wasn't a prisoner. So he doesn't see being a prisoner as a bad thing. He sees it as a blessing. I kind of wonder how my theology will drive my methodology on the day I get arrested for my faith. Praise God, we don't have that in Canada. Yet. (laughs) Maybe one day. Who knows where the world will go, right? But will we respond this way? Does our theology change our methodology? This is what Paul's showing. And then he says these words, which are amazing for me. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, reminding people of kind of the life he's living, he says these words. He says, I urge you. I urge you. Your translation of the Bible might say, I exhort you. That word exhort, that word urge, it literally means it's a strong urge. It's to argue a point. It's to give warning. He spends the first three chapters talking about who Jesus is, building his theology. Because of the theology, I urge you, this is important. Pay attention. Don't get this wrong. That kind of language kind of perks my ears up going, okay, what, Paul? What do I do, Paul? Tell me what to do. And Paul says this, I urge you to live a life worthy of that calling. Because of what Jesus has done. Because God loves you. Because Jesus died for you, rose from the dead for you, is ascended to heaven because he speaks to God the Father on your behalf. When God looks down on you, he doesn't see a sinner. He sees a saint. He sees a daughter. He sees a son. Because of that, don't waste your life. urge you live your calling and paul goes on in many different places in his writings and we see what a wasted life is for paul a wasted life is a life that gets to the end of their life with a lot of money in a big house in a fancy car and you finished the race and life was comfortable and life was easy and you had no trouble, and then you die. Paul says that is a wasted life as a follower of Jesus. You were called to something far greater than that. Paul's urgency for me, for you, is to live your calling. To live your calling. Don't waste your life settling for less. Don't waste your life settling for a faith that's eh. 
or a church experience. That's because eh. God's heart for the church is unity and maturity. As we're going to continue to unpack, God has so much more in store for you. And the danger for all of us, the danger for me, is to forget this. Like, Paul gives us a glimpse of what this life looks like, right? He says, like, to live this life, like, you can be completely humble. You can be gentle. You can be patient. I love this one. You can bear with one another. How many of you over the Christmas holidays are like me and you get this twitch? Any of you get, anyone else get the twitch in their eyes? Certain family members? Okay, it's just me. And you get this twitch around certain people. I've got this really cool twitch. It starts in the right eye, kind of under the little bag that's here in my right eye. And it's literally doing like a hula dance. And I feel like I should be like church planting in Hawaii. Because like my whole right side of the face around certain people just starts twitching like this. And you can go in a mirror and you can see it moving. It's like, wow, you have way too much power. This is going to make me puke. Okay, stop doing that. Um, Woo, dizzy. Okay. And you can see it in the mirror. You have way too much power in my life for my face to be twitching like this when I'm around you. Okay? And Paul says, the life you've been called to, you have power to deal with that. You have power to be patient and gentle and loving without being a doormat and letting people walk all over you. (laughs) I understand that. But the danger is that we can forget this. Right? We can, in our own strength, forget this power we have. And because life is messy, because church is messy, I know I can be defensive. I know I can lose my patience. I know there are certain people I don't like putting up with. But in my flesh, there's no power. Because of my theology, I can change how I live. Because Paul's urgent request for all of us is to live our calling. To live our calling that the Spirit in us empowers us to live as a new humanity. (laughs) To live as a new humanity. And the second thing, then, Paul continues in this section here, the letter, the second point is this, is then, because we live our calling, the second thing we need to do is we need to be equipped in our calling. The heart of God for the church is for that Christians would be equipped in our calling, right? He continues here in verse 11. And honestly, Ephesians 4, chapter, uh, sorry, Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12 are two of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Like every single Bible I own, those verses are highlighted and underlined. There's usually a big circle around it that says, Alleluia, Amen, praise be to God, around these verses. And it's this. It says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Right? God gives certain people, certain offices, we call them. He gives certain spiritual gifts. He gives these things to the church, not to do all the work, but to equip Christians in their calling. Right? 
this is this is why I love this, and this is why I circle this, because um, see, when I first started in ministry, I actually thought it was my role to do everything, and I thought it was my role to kind of be someone who I wasn't, and just to try to keep Christians happy and keep the church happy, and I would try to do everything for everybody, and I would try to do your work. See, because if you're like me, let's be honest, right? How many of you? really deep down, you know, it's just easier for you to do it yourself than to get someone else to help you with it. Anyone else believe that? If you're like nudging your husband right now, knock it off. (laughs) Right? But we're like that. There's something in us, especially us men. Okay? Like I was visiting my parents this week, right? Visiting my parents. And we went for a road trip because there were so many of us and all these kids. We had to take two cars and we had to stop for gas, and I was ran out of windshield wiper fluid. So I'm, I'm at the gas station with my dad in the other car, and we get out. My dad, like, just turned 70. I'm going to be in two. I'm going to be 48 in a few weeks. I'm 48 years old. My dad comes in, and he's got to open up my hood, and he's got to go. Well, no, no, that's the oil. You put it there. <laughs> and the twitch came back. <laughs> you know, it's like. I know where the windshield wiper fluid goes. I've done it thousands of times without you, Dad. Like my dad is incredibly handy, incredibly can build houses, can do build like he builds huge pulp and paper mills. He's an incredibly talented guy, and I and and when I help him, I'm in the way. My job is hold the flashlight, and I'm usually doing it wrong, and I usually just get kicked out. And we had lots of eye twitching over the past week because my, my wife's going, go help him, go help him. And he's like, get out of here, get out of here. And I'm in this tension between my wife saying, go help your dad. My dad's saying, get lost. I can do this better without you. We're, there's something in us. It's easier to do it ourselves. And guess what? Church is no different. It's easy for the elders to just do it themselves. It's easy for the pastor to just do it himself goes against the heart of God. The heart of God is that everybody knows their calling. Everybody knows their place in the body. And the reason God gave apostles and evangelists and prophets and pastors and teachers is to equip you in your calling. But here's the beauty of this. I don't know if it's the beauty of it. Here's the flip side of this. You can say no. I heard a story once, and I'm going to assume this is urban legend, but it's a story that pastors love because every single one of us wish we had the guts to do this as pastors. heard the story of a pastor from a very influential church, got up one Sunday morning and preached a message on loving thy neighbor as thyself and went through the theology of loving God with your whole being and loving your neighbor and what that means theologically and then gave application. And made it very simple. Here's ways that you can share your faith. Here's ways you can invite people to church. Here's ways that you can be a blessing in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school. Kind of equipping people in their calling. And he said, and all I want is, if you invite people to church next Sunday, come and introduce them to me after the service. If, if you have stories, share the stories with me. Share the stories with your small group. And then the next Sunday, the pastor got up. And he asked, who brought someone to church? Nobody. How many people loved their neighbors this week? Nobody. 
So he took the sermon that he wrote and he put it away. And he took out the week before sermon on loving the neighbor as yourself and preached it again. And went through the theology of it. And then went through the same methodology. Here's how to share your faith. Here's how to invite someone to church. Here's how we can do it. It's really simple. Go do it. Just tell me the stories. Introduce them to me on Sunday. Would love to meet your family. Love to meet your colleagues. Week two. Week three. Share your stories. Nothing. So he took the sermon again and put it away. And took the old sermon and preached it again. Supposedly, urban legend says he preached the same sermon for three months. And you wonder why we pastors love that story? Because we have more biblical knowledge than any of us live. We know more Bible than we live. Because we have the power to say, no, thank you. I know these people are trying to equip me, but I'll pass. (laughs) See, you don't need to read a book on church growth. You know how easy church growth is? You don't need a PhD in church growth methodology. You need a church that invites people to church. Rocket science. I just cured cancer. It's like, I never thought of that. Right? The purpose of why we gather is so that we will be equipped in our calling. We worship, we preach, we have programs. The theology behind them is to equip you in your calling. Live your calling, be equipped in your calling. And finally, Paul says that we are to mature in our calling. Paul concludes this section in verse 14 saying, like, then, then when we are equipped, Then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Paul's heart is for Christians to become mature. Now, I think a lot of times when we think of Christian maturity, we think of knowledge. The more someone knows, that means they're the more mature Christian. But you know through experience, just because someone knows a lot of Bible doesn't mean they're living a mature Christian life. For Paul, maturity is life change. Increased knowledge changes how we live. Maturing as a Christian is shown, goes from our head to our hearts, to our hands, and to our feet. It's lifestyle. It changes who we are because we are a new humanity. Right? For Paul, this Christian maturity has to, has to do with changed life. See, and, and, and Paul, knowledge is a good thing. Knowledge is an important thing. We're going to talk more about that next week. Paul, in almost every single one of his letters, is guarding people against false teachers. Because there's always this idea of, oh, that's really cool. I never heard of that. Oh, that's really exciting. I never heard of that. And we as Christians, for 2,000 years, go, oh, I love that. Oh, I love that. Why don't we go and we get tossed all over every new book, every new conference, every new idea. Whenever I hear someone say, oh, Pastor Kevin, you got to watch this YouTube video. It's three and a half hours long. And this person has this deep insight. And he has you know, kind of found something in the Bible that no one has ever seen before. Don't send me those YouTube videos. I'm not watching that. If someone goes, 
wow, this leader has seen something in the Bible that no one has ever seen before? Run away. You know why? You know why we had the Reformation 500 years ago? It's because if every single person who reads this can't see it, it ain't there. The Word of God is accessible for everybody, not just some holy man or holy woman who finds some insight that no one else has ever seen. Stop being blown around all over the place in this stuff. We become mature. We become grounded. That's the God's heart for the church. It's for us to mature. God's heart for all of us this year to live our calling, be equipped in our calling, to mature in our calling. And all of us have to ask the question, so what? What am I going to do with this theology? What am I going to do with this theology of God's heart for the church? You have to ask yourself, am I going to live my calling? If you don't know what your calling is, talk to us as the staff. Join a life group. Talk to your life group leader. Find that we have ways to help you find those callings in your life. Right? So there's a theology of being equipped. You have to ask yourself, am I going to choose to allow the church to equip me in my calling this year? Or am I just going to settle for where I'm at and how things are going because it's fine, it's good enough? Right? Are you going to take steps to be equipped this year. We have ways for that to happen as well. We'll talk more about those in the next couple of weeks. And then finally, we have to ask ourselves, are, are you seeing evidence of Christian maturity in your life? If you're not, that's okay. Talk about it. Pray about it. Get into group life. You know, figure this thing out. We, we're here to do. This is why we do what we do. <laughs> so that every single year, even though we're disappointed that we don't have flying cars, we can still be maturing in our faith. <laughs> becoming more and more like Jesus, right? because that is God's heart for the church, right? Paul concludes this section. He says, from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows, builds itself up in love. That's why we do this thing called church. The theology drives the message, the theology of living our calling, be equipped in our calling, mature in our calling, so that we can be men, women, boys, and girls of love, who are bringing a message of love to the world, that are loving people that God loves, the hurting, the broken, the widows, the orphans, the poor, the marginalized, the least of these. When we live that out, God truly does immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. So as we kick this new year off together, as we have new brothers and sisters worshiping in another language, I firmly believe God is doing more than we could ask or imagine. And it takes all of us understanding the theology and living out the calling that God has for all of us. Let's pray together. Father, I praise you and thank you for the teachings of the Apostle Paul and how convicting they are to me personally. God, I praise you that your word is alive and it transforms us. And God, I pray you would continue to transform me each and every time I open up your word. I pray that I would never look at the word of God as simply a tool to teach others. But God, I pray that you would always start with me. 
change my heart, change my life, work on the sins in my life, and work on my flesh so I could become more like Jesus. And Father, I pray for all of us this new year. I pray that we would all live out God's heart for the church, a heart of unity and maturity. Life can be messy. Church can be messy. But God, you love the church. You love the bride of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help all of us live out our calling, to be equipped in our calling, and to mature in that calling as we follow you. Father, I pray for our Arabic brothers and sisters in the other room, and as they're learning how to take their worship service from two hours into an hour and 15 minutes, God, I pray that you would bless them and guide them in this. And Lord, I just pray just for everything that you're doing in our church family. It's exciting. It's a little scary. But God, we give you the praise for it because you are doing great things. And maybe you're here today or you're watching this online and you're, you're hearing this call. You're, maybe you're just feeling this prompting. Maybe you, you know, you've never really put your faith in God before. You're not too sure where you stand with God. I just want you to know that God loves you. And I, I sadly, I meet so many people who feel that God couldn't love them because of stuff in their life. And, you know, there is nothing that you could ever do in life that would make God not love you. Nothing. Nothing. And God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die for you. So you, you don't have to pay for that sin. You don't have to pay for that choice. You don't have to be punished for it. Jesus was punished for it. And the Bible says if you would just believe in your heart that Jesus paid for your sin, that he was nailed to a cross, that he rose from the dead, if you would believe that in your heart, if you would repent, which means to say, God, I'm sorry. The Bible says you become that new humanity. And you can do that even today. And if you do that today here, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. If you do that online, just send us a message. We would love to follow up with you. But for the rest of us who've made that decision, I pray this year that you would truly step into the calling that God has for your life and that you would be equipped in it and that you would mature in it.